Hey everybody, welcome to episode 42 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Rappel, and with me as always, fresh off of yet another SCG Tour t- uh, team open top 8 is Collins Mullen. Hey Collins. <laughs> hey Chris, what's up? Not much, man. Good job uh, getting there yet again. What What is your secret? <laughs> I don't know, man. Team opens are pretty great, honestly. I think I've been pretty lucky to be teaming with some some pretty cool people uh, in all the team opens I've played in, which is uh, it definitely can't can't hurt, right? So, and also I think that you know the team dynamics that we've had have been just like pretty chill, and I think that that actually goes like a long way towards just like you know everybody on the team having a good mentality about the tournaments and everything so uh yeah you know yeah. it's it's been fun and i mean this time um, you actually teamed you re-teamed again which you don't you don't do that much a lot of times like you know you yeah, yeah. got a lot of top eights with different teams but this time you got it again with with todd stevens and jody keith so that's pretty cool yeah jody and uh todd kind of contacted me and were like hey you know we know that you've been jumping around or whatever, but we're kind of wondering if you can, uh, like, like which events you're going to be available for. And it worked out for Baltimore, so we, we teamed up again. And the funny story there is actually that the last time Jody and Todd and I teamed together, it was in Baltimore, and we made top eight. So <laughs> we, we were able to do, uh, do one better this time and make, uh, make top four, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, so just two more, and then you guys will have a trophy. So that's nice. Uh, yeah, just two more, just two more. We'll make finals and then, and then maybe we'll get the trophy. It's pretty good. Uh, yeah, Jody and Todd are, are just great dudes to hang out with. Definitely have a good attitude for, uh, you know, playing in big tournaments, I think. I think that that probably, like, I really like focusing on elements to magic tournaments that are kind of, like, outside of the game a little bit. I think that mm-hmm. those are generally more underrated. And uh, something that I've been thinking a lot about lately is kind of like the mindset that you find yourself in when playing in a tournament. Like a lot of people can get caught up on really trying to make day two, right? So in day one, they're like playing their heart out because they really want to make day two. And then they make day two and then they've like accomplished their goal. And then on day two, they, uh, they kind of allow themselves to like relax a little bit too much and, you know, don't try as hard and like don't end up getting the like a, a, a good finish they kind of like peter out at the end but the good thing about jody and todd is that they want to win the tournament right so it's not over until uh you know until they get that trophy right and i just think that you know that that just kind of like gave us all the attitude of we're just gonna you know we're gonna play our best until the the very end and um uh and i think that that's just like a good atmosphere to be playing competitive magic in so yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, I mean, it definitely helps to have, you know, been there many times before, you know, like for for you guys, it's not like you have any shortage of SEG day twos. So right, right, right. Once you got several of those under your belt, it, it becomes less of an exciting moment and more like, okay, now we, we really have to start working. Whereas, you know, if your goal, like it's fine, it's a fine goal to have like, I just want to make day two. Um, and then after that, you can sort of update your goals, but, but definitely like those, what you want to accomplish in a tournament certainly changes over time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that that's just right. The, the experience is what allows you to, to develop kind of a better mindset towards putting yourself in a good environment to play magic. Right. Um, yeah. you know, if you're just kind of like starting to go to tournaments and everything, you're, I wouldn't expect anybody in that scenario to, you know, to have like a, a a hardened attitude towards anything at all, right? Uh, you're just kind of there to have fun, and and you should enjoy the experience. But right for 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 the people who've been playing for a long time, um, you can kind of like get into the nitty gritty of like focusing on all, all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it wouldn't even be helpful to be like, well, I'm not going to leave this tournament happy unless I top eight. If you've never right. two before, yeah, probably like, even actively detrimental, right? Yeah, but. Um, <laughs> There's always just the the fact that like, you know, you can you can definitely be aiming for like these are the results that I think we are capable of, and I would like to make top eight. I'd like to win the tournament. But you know, you always do have to keep in the back of your head like 
this is magic, this is a high variance sort of thing, like being completely results focused to the exclusion of everything else is not going to be super healthy for your game. But, you know, once you are playing at that sort of level, you know, like the goal of I want to be playing at the level that you know winning the tournament would require and i would like to over the course of enough tournaments like average where i think i'm supposed to be averaging like that that's fine but you know you can't leave a tournament dejected because you had some bad hands and you you didn't you know get what you wanted to because this this is magic at the end of the day right and i think that another big part of it is that it's okay to have the goal of winning the tournament Mm -hmm. fall up short and still, but still have a decent finish and be happy with that finish, right? Like yeah. going into the turn, you know, going into day two specifically at nine and zero, we wanted to win this tournament, right? And we fell short. We ended up losing in top four, but that doesn't mean that we're un- like that doesn't mean that we're sad about our finish. We're still super excited to have finished in you know in top four. That's a good result. Um, I think that the trap that a lot of people fall into is. You know, setting these really high goals because, you know, winning the tournament for any team, you know, it doesn't matter like how good the team is. That goal is always going to be unlikely to be accomplished, right? Right. Um, So, you know, if you set these really lofty goals or whatever and you're going to be disappointed with anything else, I think that that's kind of like a trap that people can fall into. But, um, uh, you know, wanting to win the tournament and then ended you know ending up in top four you know we we can still be happy with that right that's not something that we're disappointed about right right winning the tournament is never your your like a your primary like a level goal like winning the tournament is the stretch goal that's the best the weekend could possibly go but but it can certainly be on your on your list of things that i would like to accomplish this weekend um yeah agreed for sure for sure i do want to uh apologize to listeners if my uh, recording and and like background noise is not quite up to the standards that we usually try to set. I am I am recording from my laptop uh, in the basement of a hostel in the lounge area right now. So I found a mostly quiet corner, but I you know there's a there's a refrigerator going next to me and and, and people are naturally walking in and out. So there might be a, a little a little bit of disruption, but uh, trying to minimize that as much as possible and cut out as much as I can in editing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm, it'll be all right, I'm sure, for this one episode. There's not not a whole cl- lot of uh, quiet spaces in Paris, I, I hear. No, no. I mean, if I had, like, sprung for the full-on hotel room, but I've, I've, you know, I've been here for almost a week. Like, I played an eternal weekend, and then I did a lot of just the regular old exploring Paris, going to museums, seeing the Eiffel Tower, all that, you know, normal Sounds person awesome. nonsense. It was good. It was <laughs> definitely really good. Um, yeah, but I, yeah. I could not quite afford it. A hotel. I couldn't justify a week in a hotel, so hostel it is for me. Nice. Yeah, I've I've done my fair share of, of hosteling, and, and they can be fun for sure. Yeah, yeah. This this is the the primary drawback is when you need to record a podcast and can't find a spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair, fair for sure. Uh, yeah. So before we get really going, um, and I definitely want to hear sort of the story of the tournament and your deck mm-hmm. choices and that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, we'll, we'll dive pretty deep into the white black deck that you played because I know that was, you know, kind of, you know, we were talking about it last week, but the, the, the list that you ended up on is kind of a Lotus box special. So we want to focus on that pretty, pretty hard. But before we dive into that, I just want to take a second to thank our patrons. So if you want to support the podcast, always free, of course, just, you know, we, we love you guys tuning in, but we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Uh, Discord connected with that, so if you want to join up in our community, that would be awesome. Uh, we got a few new patrons over the past week or so. Uh, Andrew Keaton, Andrew Smith, and William Wingler have all popped up in the Discord, so thank you guys so much for your support. And yeah, we will continue trying to make good content that hopefully you guys are, are interested in. So, uh, yeah, why don't you, you want to just sort of tell me the story of how the tournament went? I mean, starting out 9-0, pretty good. Uh, how did you end up on your decks? Because you were all on kind of some non-standard choices. I mean, Todd's choice was standard for him, but not necessarily a uh, standard modern deck. Right, standard for modern, for sure. Yeah, so we we kind of all did play 
at least going into the tournament, all of our decks were pretty oddball. At near near the end of the tournament, it became clear that this white black deck was the truth, right? And it was kind of all over the top eight, but um, kind of no surprise there, I think. Yeah, so it it all kind of started when we knew that Jody was going to play Legacy. That's never a question. But yeah. Todd and I were actually debating between the two of us on who wanted to play Standard. Um, we had both played Standard in Atlanta. Uh, Todd, I guess, had been kind of on a Standard kick and had you know was you know wanting to get his feet wet more in, in the Standard format. But I think that you know we we were both kind of comfortable with either Modern or. Um, or standard, uh, you know, it, it would have been easy to throw me on humans in in modern because sure. it's starting to look like humans is really taking over in modern. Yeah, no um, kidding. Yeah, humans has just been everywhere. But uh, it kind of came down to the fact that Todd didn't really have as much time to uh, test as I did for standard, and especially in the early weeks of standard, it's really important to just get the grind on on Magic Online. Um, see what's out there, get a feel for what you're going to be playing against. And uh, early in the week, Zan and JJ had messaged me talking about this sweet new black-white deck that they've been crushing with on Magic mm-hmm. Online. So Todd was like, all right, why don't we just plan on me playing Value Town and, uh, and you can you know test standard and stuff. And so, so yeah, I, I talked to the Lotus Box guys, Zan was really high on this uh, white-black aggro deck. It essentially first popped up as a, I think, the second place of a PTQ on Magic Online, which was, uh, it was this white-black aggro deck with with Knight of Malice, and people were like, Knight of Malice? Really? Is that, like, what's what we're doing here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, our final list, I think, was a little different than that one, but kind of the fundamental idea came from there, and we discovered that kind of the boogeyman going into Baltimore was going to be this blue-white control deck. The blue-white control deck had a lot of success the previous weekend in Atlanta. Um, It won the tournament. It put multiple copies in the top eight. Uh, Mm -hmm. Austin Collins and Rudy both had the same 75. So that's pretty telling that, you know, their deck was good, right, for that weekend. So that that deck was really, really good for week one of Standard because... People were not really ready for Fumigate or Settle the Wreckage. Uh, everybody was trying to just like play beatdown strategies in week one or whatever. And they didn't have any answers really to to just like those like sweeper effects, right? Which really allowed this blue-white deck to re- dominate. Yeah. Um, so because of that, we anticipated to see a lot of blue-white control in the tournament in Baltimore, just because whatever has a lot of success the previous weekend is going to be very popular the next weekend. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, going to have a successful weekend the next weekend because, you know, standard shifts and people become prepared for things. But we wanted to be good against that deck for for day one of Baltimore. Right. Whatever does very well, you're, you're going to play against, even if it doesn't end up, yeah. you know, crushing it. Exactly. Exactly. For sure. Yeah, we, we discovered that Knight of Malice specifically and Heart of Kirin were like really really well set up to fight against the uh, the builds of blue white control that we were seeing. Kind of neither of those died at any of their spot removal. Other uh, like um, Heart of Kirin only is hit by cast out, and uh, Knight of Malice dodges all of the white removal spells that the blue white deck was playing. So that really allowed you to have like some strong play patterns of like. Uh, attacking with just a knight a couple of turns in a row when they're trying to hold up settle the wreckage so that like you know if they want to you know answer your knight then they have to use their settle but they're only trading one for one at that point which is a really good play pattern for you and kind of a similar idea with the heart of kieran uh you know there are a lot of times where their only answer to the heart is settle the wreckage so you can just like crew the heart and attack with only the heart and you know they can only take five hits from that until uh, they they're kind of forced into settling and answering it, and then after that, you know, you can you can be more lenient of like you know ignoring settle the wreckage and really putting the pressure on. Yeah, and and not only that, but you're forcing them to cast an expensive spell like on your schedule, 
like they can't just like end of turn kill Heart of Kirin or Knight of Malice. They have to you know yeah. either fumigate the Knight of Malice or settle the wreckage or something during combat, and that leaves you a big opening to drop just a, a haymaker card. Which and we oh boy did we have a haymaker card. <laughs> Karn Scion of Ur- Urza is uh, quite the magic card, especially against these control decks. Yeah, yeah. Karn Karn kind of like was the other piece that that fit everything together. And I think that we saw that out of, like, the red-black aggro deck that JJ played in Atlanta. Um, and also just kind of, like, the new iteration of, of that card in this deck. Mm-hmm. I guess, like, if, if Yeah, Lotus I Box... think the lists that we saw last week, like, the that did that only have two cards yeah, in it? Yeah. I, I think that might be the main, like, figuring out exactly what this deck is doing is oh this is a karn deck yeah no like, for like sure. the point of a lot of the cards is so that you can resolve the karn against blue white mm-hmm. so yeah so right I, like if, if lotus box made any insane innovations to the deck it's definitely that we we ended up putting just like jamming four karns into the deck because we knew that that card was really busted and it worked out pretty well <laughs> <laughs> yeah the yeah the ptq list that we saw only had two carns and we were like nah nah bro we're, we're gonna we're gonna put it four just because they <laughs> like drawing multiples actually isn't that bad like you can you can play karn minus minus play another karn minus and you just like you have a bunch of pack rats right <laughs> all of a sudden it's really crazy yeah um, right they're just gigantic at that point, yeah. yeah. Especially like if you are if you already have like a Heart of Kirin out or a um, like a Scrap Heap Scrounger, you know these these guys get really out of control. Post board, if you ever pop your uh, treasure map, then there are four fours. Just like one of them and three treasures is is like really big. Uh, yeah, that's actually kind of like a sweet play that that existed at the deck is like uh, you know having the construct and like being able to surprise people with the fact that it's a uh, that it's like all of a sudden a four four if you're like popping a map or something. Karn essentially was just like a, a really big part of why this deck was able to succeed. It's just like you know in in the previous like you know if we wanna if we wanna compare this deck to like Mardu vehicles or something of of the previous standard format, um, Karn is our uh, Gideon, uh, where it's just like the the planeswalker that we're trying to slam and take over the game with, and uh, it definitely works pretty well in that in that role i think yeah i mean they they can only really answer it with cast out or i guess post board by attacking it with lyra dawnbreaker <laughs> but that's yeah that's not necessarily something you're super worried about um and and you're definitely stretching their cast outs kind of to the brink as yeah. it is with cards like heart yeah. of karen yeah so. absolutely um right so our matchup against blue white um very good and probably why i think that we had a lot of success Everybody that I talked to that was playing the deck, and kind of funny story there, it felt like everybody that I talked to leading into the tournament was on this white-black aggro deck. Um, really? Uh, and, it, like, of course it was, like, people in my friend circle or whatever, so these are the people that, you know, had to, like, you know, kind of heard the news or whatever from, from Lotus Box or whatever. Uh, but, every, like, sure. when I was talking to kind of, like, anybody... Uh, going into the weekend, they were all on this white-black deck. So, and and then, like, at the tournament, everybody I talked to that was playing it had a really, really successful day one. Like, I only lost one match on day one, um, and I've heard, I heard the same story from, like, uh, I think Rossum had a similar record, and um, Zach Keeney, and just, like, kind of everybody that... Uh, Abe Stein. Because in day one, that's when all of the blue-white control decks existed, and we were able to, you know, line up against those really well. Uh, in day two, things started to get a little more uh, resilient, I think, to the to the white-black decks. Specifically, the, the green-black decks, I actually think are really well set up to fight against the, the white-black aggro deck. Okay. And why, why is that? So, um, the... In game one... Uh, the green black constrictor deck is their like primary plan is to like play constrictor, put counters on things, go really big, and then kill you. Um, and that lines up really well against the white black aggro's primary game one plan, which typically is like playing a bunch of three twos and two two knights, 
and Hardikir and, and trying to go aggro that way. Like, we're, we're a Toolcraft deck, right? So we're playing Toolcraft, Scrapheap Scrounger, stuff like that. And those three twos line up really poorly if you can ever get a creature that's bigger than it, right? And a result of that is that our, our game ones against Mono Green and the Green Black Constrictor deck are typically pretty poor unless we draw a lot of, like, Fatal Pushes, right? Or something to, like, clean up the board and, and put the pressure on that way. So, uh, and, but then post-board, we have a very favorable matchup against Mono Green specifically because we bring in Fumigates and Subtle Wreckage and just kind of, like, all of those cards that they struggle really against. But the green-black decks actually also have bigger, grindier plans post-board. Uh, the green-black decks, you're going to see bring in Vraska's, and Life Crafters, Bestiary, and like uh, I saw some lists with their own Karns, um, and like they were able to just like post board. We're trying to we're, we we take out all the toolcrafts and all the scrap heaps conjurers, and we turn into like this mid rangey control deck with uh, you know with our own sweepers and stuff to like clear the board up, and then we're trying to take over the game with like Angel of Sanctions and uh, and you know Karn and just like the grindier elements, right? Um, but then the, the green-black constrictor deck, I saw a lot of those decks have a similar plan where they're like bringing in their own Vraskas and they've got disenchant effects. You know, the bestiary is really strong in the grindy plans because then, you know, all of their creatures are refueling them. So your sweepers are, are worse. Yeah. And so the, like, mono green, I think that we're fine. We're going to be fine against because, uh, you know, post board, we have the sweepers and everything and we can, we can deal with everything then but post board against green black specifically uh like they're just also on this grindy plan and they go even bigger than we do so it just doesn't work out yeah and they just have a lot of options like like probably bringing in duresses is is good for them too as well yeah, because yeah, yeah. taking out planeswalkers we're gonna be trying to yeah lean on like a fumigate to stabilize or whatever because they, i think that right. their general like beatdown plan is gonna beat ours most of the time um, yeah. I mean, your your guys are just not good on your own turn is is the problem there, pretty much. Like, if you're in the matchups where you're guaranteed to be the aggressor, then they're all, you know, Toolcraft and, and Scrap Heap are, are exceptional. But when you when you're on the draw i mean when you're on the on the back foot i mean you're 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 taking those cards out in that matchup i assume but still most of your deck is built for attacking and that's that can be a little tough if you aren't attacking anymore right right for sure um yeah and that's just kind of the downside of any deck that has this type of transformational sideboard plan is that mm -hmm. you you're really looking for cards that can kind of play both roles, right? Because if you have a card that only is going to play one role, then, you know, if you have too many of that, then you're going to be stuck. Uh, right. Like, keeping keeping in off-planned cards in particular configurations of your deck, right? So you, you can't have, like, too many Toolcraft and Scrappy-style cards. And I think that that's kind of, like, one of the reasons that um, Gideon of the Trials we had a lot of success with in this deck. Because Gideon can be both a aggressive and a control card. Um, sure. So that's just kind of like a slot that we don't have to worry about mixing up too much in our post-board configurations, which is nice. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Plus, you know, a solid combo with Heart of Kieran. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, Heart of Kieran, man, it just goes really well with Planeswalkers. <laughs> uh, you know, being able to like use your Planeswalkers ability and and have it crew, it just feels like you get a whole extra card out of that interaction, right? Because normally when you're crewing a vehicle, you, you have to use up a whole creature to do that. But, um, you know, just like one loyalty pip off of a Planeswalker doesn't feel like nearly as, as much of a cost if you're if you're trying to beat down, right? And especially with, with Planeswalkers that have a lot of loyalty, like, like Gideon and, and Karn just, compared to their mana costs, have a ton of loyalty, so that's really nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, based on all of that, do we feel like this is more of a, you know, meta deck? Or does it have legs going forward? Or, you know, what what's the deal with it? Yeah, I, I think that it's definitely more of a meta deck because it's it was really, really built to beat blue-white control. And mm -hmm. it did a really good job of that. But um, it has its weaknesses, right? It's, yeah. it's pretty weak to the screen-black deck. Um, 
And that green black deck ended up winning the team open, right? Does it have does it have similar problems against against the mono red decks, or does it line up a little bit better? It lines up. I, I think guess you better have Lyra. The mono red decks because yeah. the um, the mono red creature plan is easier to interact with. Mm -hmm. We can play creatures that are bigger than their creatures, and you know we can save our answers for the creatures that they have that um, are going to be out of control. Like you know. We can we can you know thought to rest their hazard or whatever and then you know be able to fight through that. Um, but when like with with mono green when all of their creatures are are really large, then it becomes a pretty big problem. Sure. Um, and we need okay. like a sweeper effect to keep up. But when our knights are like brawling really well with their with like the you know the one twos and the one ones and the you know <laughs> all the creatures out of mono red then we're in a good spot right. right you know we can we can rely on our creatures to kind of like you know board stall okay yeah but that that, I, that we just found is just wasn't the case against the green decks because the green decks were just all their dudes were so big yeah you just can't can't kill them all yeah winding constrictor just makes things get really out of control so yeah yeah and unfortunately like I mean, you do have the best answer for Winding Constrictor, which is Fatal Push. But, like, the more Fatal Pushes you play main deck, the worse you are against, like, the matchup you're actually aiming for and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it's a tough balance to strike. And and, and, we, and you do have to answer it. We end up hedging pretty hard for the, the mirror when it became clear to us uh, that everybody was playing the white-black aggro deck we were like okay how can we how can we kind of like hedge all the cards in our deck to be better in the mirror uh we had our little powwow our lotus box powwow at a in a hotel room kind of the night before and we were like okay what do we want to do and we were like oh okay we want to play more fatal pushes instead of seal aways because the original list had two seal aways and we were playing two seal aways for a minute but that card was just really unimpressive and the the you know our deck is kind of built to ignore that card for the most part um yeah with like the hearts and the vigilance knights and the um you know and the knight of malice seal away just isn't touching any of our threats yeah um, and you probably just don't want seal away in any threat with in any deck with toolcraft exemplar in it like that does not seem like a good opening hand right 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 yeah it like leaning on your opponent turning creature sideways is, is not what you want so we, the original list had like two fatal push and two seal away. We ended up going for three fatal push and one thopter rest, because thopter rest could still hit any creature, um, but it didn't. You know, it didn't have the caveat that the creature had to be tapped. So it could hit heart of Kirin. It could hit. It's kind of like a catch all against like gift decks if that's something that we were worried about. Um, so I really liked us coming up with that split of the. Uh, the one thopter rest and the three fatal pushes mm -hmm. in the main yeah yeah that definitely makes sense and that's kind of like one of the things that we did to be better in the mirror um is like the more fatal pushes instead of seal aways stuff like that um and uh and the thing that we really wanted to hash out kind of the night before was okay what's our mirror plan you know how are we going to be sideboarding in the mirror and what do we think is important you know and we we kind of came to the conclusion that kind of all of the like the small dudes were typically not very good in the mirror so we ended up mm -hmm. like boarding into our mid-range deck um and we didn't bring in like fumigates or anything because not really that great in the mirror um but you know bring in the settle and like just like the the angel sanctions were were really huge in the mirror kind of like the heavy hitters that you wanted yeah um, yeah it was kind of like this weird like one tournament you know metagame all right, we got to prepare for all of these things, and now like we're the boogeyman a little bit. So, <laughs> so what are we gonna do? Um, right. Yeah. And a lot of times that but it's that great. means that like oh no, like our timing is not right. If if then like a lot of people are gonna be on the same deck, but it sounds like it worked out just fine. Like there weren't as many yeah. people on it. You had a better plan for the mirror than maybe other people had, and that was good enough. Yeah, and and I mean the weekend just went phenomenally for for everybody playing the white black aggro deck. I think. I know that Nicklich's team got 11th or something. Rossum's team made top eight. We made top four. Uh, mm -hmm. There were four copies of the white-black aggro deck in the top eight of the team tournament. Yeah. Um, 
it just yeah it i think that just even empirically it was just the right choice for this weekend which was really nice yeah it um, certainly seemed to be zan won the classic the next day with the with the white black deck <laughs> um so uh yeah things went yeah. pretty pretty swimmingly could could not have gone much better definitely yeah for sure um, but I do kind of want to point out that, yeah, I think that moving forward, if you if you expect to see a lot of this white-black deck, that the, the black-green constrictor deck is probably a really good choice. As long as you have a big sideboard plan that knows, that can, like, fight through Fumigates and everything. And I think that you're just going to need that against the people anyways, who want to play the yeah. blue-white control decks anyways, right? Definitely. Um, Kind of one of my, my one of my ongoing theories in standard right now is that the decks that are that have one plan and can't really switch that plan up too much uh, are not really going to have a lot of success at the moment in standard, and that applies to both mono red and the blue white control decks. Mono red is the like the low to the ground aggressive deck. And a lot of the lists that I've seen don't really have the flexibility to change that plan post-board. There are some that try to go bigger, right, post-board. Uh, but I haven't seen like a lot of mono-red lists that are really pushing that angle. Uh, like the, the, the red splash black, more vehicles-oriented red lists do kind of have that like bigger angle. And I think that it's really important to be able to switch plans. Uh, and then kind of like the same thing for the blue-white control deck. Like they are the control deck and they're going to be the control deck post-board. It, you know, their plan is pretty stagnant and they don't have a lot of flexibility in switching that up. And I think that that just like the, the decks that are going to be able to switch between being a fast aggressive deck and like a grindy mid-range deck are going to be able to prey upon whatever strategy you have because they're just going to be able to understand which of their strategies is going to line up best against yours and then do that post board right and if you don't have any flexibility to to change up that dynamic you're you know you're just going to be your opponent is gets to pick like how the matchup is going to play out right and that's not a place that i would want to be so i really like all of the decks right now in standard that have this dynamic plans of being able to switch back and forth between playing an aggressive role and playing a uh, kind of a more mid-rangey controlling role if they deem that appropriate for the particular matchups. I really like being in that spot right now in standard, and I think that's just going to be really important moving forward. Yeah, and it seems like Karn is a big part of that flexibility. Like, that's a card that just on the spot you can decide how whether you are being reactive or being aggressive. Are you... Are you just trying to make a bunch of guys and kill them, or are you trying to play a longer game? And and that that four mana planeswalker, you know, we've kind of seen this before, like you said with Gideon, that you just get to decide at that time, like what's going on in this game, and and this planeswalker is gonna have abilities that are good, you know, no matter if I'm the aggressor or if I'm the controlling deck at this point. Right. Right. Yeah. And and uh, the cards that are flexible in and of themselves, I think, are really strong. Right. Mm-hmm. Because of you know, because magic has variants to it, you're you're not always gonna have the explosive aggressive draws that you want to be able to beat your opponents down. That's you know yeah. I'd love to have toolcraft and Hardikiran in every opening hand, but that's just not gonna be the case, right? <laughs> uh so the cards that allow you to have that built in flexibility of like, you know, this draw isn't as fast as I want it to be, but it has like good elements. Like, in my opening mm-hmm. hand, okay, I don't have, like, Toolcraft into Heart, but I have, like, Fatal Push into Gideon, into Karn, and that's strong, so I'm going to keep this hand. But because these cards are flexible and, you know, Gideon and Karn can play a control role, then, you know, I feel comfortable keeping this hand because they have that flexibility kind of, like, built into them. Yeah, I think that that's just kind of, like, an element of standard that we need to be paying attention to right now. And I think mm-hmm. that the decks, and there are a lot of decks that can do this, the decks that can switch back and forth between particular plans are going to have the most success moving forward. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, that's a big reason why I, you know, if I don't just crush the uh, Legacy GP at Birmingham, like my plan is definitely to be on Constrictor 
this weekend. I, I, I think I have a solid game plan mm. for, for blue-white, which involves lots of duresses and doomfalls, uh, main deck thrashing brontodons, that sort of thing, um, and the ability to switch between how big I want to be. Uh, I, I'm not at the point where I'm running Karns in the deck yet. I, I do think that there's a fundamental difference in the strength of Karns in the artifact aggressive decks and the non-artifact you know, aggressive creature decks. Um, and I don't, like, I don't want to be in a matchup against something like white-black and they have Karns that make giant creatures and I have Karns that don't do that. I would rather be on a different axis. Um, but I, I do like green-black right now. Right. I, I just think that the rest of green-black just lines up really well. Um, specifically, I think that one of the best cards that I'm going to be looking to play moving forward in standard is Vraska. Vraska's just so good right now in, like... A planeswalker that can end the game very quickly on its own, but also like can kill creatures and blow up cast outs and thopter arrests and just kind of like all the rule spells. That's just like so much flexibility and so much power out of one planeswalker. So uh, yeah, I, I don't think that I have ever beaten and probably can't ever beat a, a resolved Vraska playing playing this white black aggro. <laughs> like unless I have just like a dominating board presence already. So right, um, it's uh, it's a tough one for sure. The bringing in the Vraskas or having one main deck and one sideboard or whatever that definitely you know makes the adventurous impulses feel really bad that they are not oaths of Nissa, <laughs> oaths of Nissa though. The fact that you can't yeah, true. Uh, true. reveal the, the your giant planeswalker is a little bit disappointing, but but still a pretty good card. Yeah, I'm still kind of hopping around on my opinion of oath adventurous impulse. I think it's really strong, and we saw the winning list. The winning list look have uh, four copies of it, and mm -hmm. I, I mean, I played against this guy twice in the tournament, and that card, whenever he cast it, did feel very strong. So maybe there's something yeah. there. And it's it's really good with these sort of like utility creatures that are of different values and different matchups. Like the fact that, like like after board, I think the value of it does go down a little bit because your cards are more aimed towards one thing. But like right now, when my main deck has a couple of ravenous chupacabras and a couple of thrashing brontodons in it, like it's very valuable to have some level of control over which ones of those I draw. So I've I've really yeah, liked yeah. it main deck, but I I often shave a couple post board. Yeah, I mean, um, James Liu cast it a couple times against me, and one time he found a, a Gear Hulk, and I was like, oh man, that's just like really good in the spot, and I died. <laughs> and then another time he cast against me, and he got a, a Ravenous Chupacabra, and I was like, man, your impulse found you a removal spell that's busted. It <laughs> is know? busted. It does uh, feel really busted. <laughs> so, right, so I, I do think that it is it is probably worth considering in that deck just for the reasons that you're laying out. It's like, it can find you your utility creatures. Yeah, it's it's much less good when most of your creatures do basically the same thing. Like, you know, I, I think that you probably are right to not end up on it in mono green most of the yeah, time, yeah. just because guys are guys in that deck. They're just big guys. Right, and that's kind of, yeah, that's what I determined for the mono green deck. Yeah, it, it just felt like, you know, I was, I was playing a card that, you know, sure, it could either be a land or a creature based on what I needed, but just so, such a high percentage of the time, I'm just trying to find any creature that I, I would rather just, like, play more creatures in that slot. Yeah, yeah, and that, that one mana is, like, it is a real cost. Like, definitely, especially once you're getting to, like, turn four and you want to be dropping your haymakers, you can't afford to just draw Adventurous Impulse and be like, well, I don't know what card this is going to turn into in two turns. Like, that makes it so much harder to plan out what you're going to do and stuff. But I, I do kind of like th uh, Thrashing Bronodon a lot in the Mono Green lists. I think that yeah. like we started seeing, like, like three of those in that list, and I think that's probably just really good. I think that Bronodon is just busted right now. So if you're running, like, more of those and finding, like, Galtas could be good, but I don't know. It's, it's a tough yeah, one. I mean, it's, it's true, because, like, you do have that one card that is very different from the rest of what you're doing, is, th is that you have Galta, and when you want Galta, you don't want anything else. You just want to draw Galta. But it, it may not be enough variety to, to make the adventurous impulses make sense. So any other standard stuff? I, I do agree that Thrashing Rotodon is, is really excellent right now. And I also really like that it's a, a three for Llanowar Elves that you don't mind casting on turn two. Like, I've, I've cut a Rishgar for it. Like, you get fewer busted, like, snake Rishgar draws, 
but you get more turn one land or elves, turn two, three mana guy that you want in play, and and you know it just makes the deck a little smoother. Yeah. Um, standard's great. <laughs> uh, I've been really enjoying standard. Um, so much so that I'm even considering. Uh, so I'm, I'm not qualified for the Pro Tour in Richmond, but mm-hmm. I am. It looks like I'm gonna go anyways to help out my friends who are qualified and test and everything. Oh, awesome! Because um, I, I think that I, I do have a pretty good idea of what is important in standard right now, and uh, there just aren't any standard events uh, outside yeah. of team events, which is annoying <laughs> a little bit. Uh, I wish there were more. Like I I recognize that standard has been in a bad spot recently, and that has kind of forced a lot of tournament organizers to shy away from that in their bigger events and everything. Right, but now that but, standard is good again, we're really feeling it. But I promise you guys, standard's back. It's really good. Um, yeah, and and we are so, also getting to the point of kind of oversaturation with, with team tournaments. I feel like, you know, yes, I, team tournaments yeah. are great, but we've just had so many GPs and so many opens that are teams. And, you know, like, like you, there were just two team opens in a row. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. We, we were kind of talking about that um, in Baltimore. I was talking about that with a couple of people where the I think kind of the novelty of team tournaments has worn off a little bit. And yeah. team tournaments are so much harder to prepare for just in a sense of like, you know, finding out which of your friends are planning on going A and are available B. Um Right, the it's logistics just, are, just, are way yeah, tougher. Yeah, it's just a logistics nightmare a lot of the time. And don't get me wrong, the tournaments are great, and I love them, and you know I'm, I'm going to be happy to play in more of them. And yeah. I'm, I'm four out of six top eight conversion rate on team open tournaments, which is awesome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just want to play in my own tournament again. You right. Know? right, you're speaking um, as someone who it would apparently just be like plus massive ev if every single tournament was a team open but (laughs) right right um and i probably am that guy but um (laughs) yeah i uh you know i it's just you know i want to be able to you know go to a tournament where um you know it's it's kind of my own stuff on the line there's just you know something also gratifying about that as well yeah Um, you so, can't you can't have cake all the time like that just doesn't work. You need yeah. You need We've been eating eat. eating way too much cake lately. So yeah. And but you know you, you also kind of have to put your, yourself in the shoes of the tournament organizers, and based on what we've been seeing lately, the team tournaments just sell more tickets than the rest of the other tournaments. Um, that's just kind of the bottom line that like Star City Games I'm sure is looking at right now is um, you know. Individual tournaments can have sometimes only around 500 to 600 players, especially for um, uh, standard events. And then for the modern events, you're seeing like maybe 800 to or so players. Mm-hmm. But it feels like literally every team event that they have is close to 300 teams, which is the cap, yeah. which is 900 players. And that's just you know that's just more income, and that's that's what the uh, the tournament organizers are going to look for, right? Um, so it kind of makes sense, but I'm wondering if the turnout will end up dying down because people kind of, like the novelty kind of wears off and people get more frustrated with the logistics of everything. Um, you know, So we'll see how long it lasts for, but yeah, I guess that's my two cents on that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... Like that that definitely feels right. I, I assume numbers will go down at some point. Um, unfortunately, you know, not much incentive to change until that happens. But I, I've definitely been seeing grumblings on, on Twitter and stuff about how like this is this is getting to be a little bit much. I, I think just the the combination of, you know, standard was bad, so SCG got rid of their standard tournaments completely. And we're also in a season of a, a decent number of team GPs because we're getting ready for a team pro tour. So the fact that both of these things happened at the same time kind of overloaded the our capacity for team tournaments. Right, right. For sure. Yeah, and, and honestly, I believe that Standard is, is back in a big way, and I want to see more Standard events. 
So, you know, I'm, I, I can get my standard fix at these team events. I think that I'm, I'm very comfortable being that seat. Um, mm -hmm. And people are probably going to want me there. So that's good for me. Um, but, uh, you know, some individual standard opens would be nice too. Yeah, I, I mean, like, I'm at the point where, like, I'm kind of hoping that I don't, like, like, I am completely okay with not doing well on day one of the Legacy GP in Birmingham because I do really want to play in the standard GP. So, mm. you know, that's that's what this format is right now. I just really want to play it. Of course, I, you know, would not complain about X and wanting day one or whatever of, of Legacy. <laughs> it's a win-win. Um, that feels great. Yeah, yeah, like, whatever happens, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. But on that note, uh, perhaps we should talk about Legacy at least a little bit. I know we're I not... at least want to talk about my teammate Jody Keith's Legacy list. <laughs> yeah, we do have to talk about this. Sure. So, so, so you know, Jody obviously like legendary lands player. Uh, like whichever yeah. team team gets him for these opens playing lands, like it feels like you're getting away with something. But he did not. <laughs> no. He did not go with lands this weekend. Yeah. So Jody. Um, essentially has been considering for a while playing if we like thinking back to the the first couple of team opens that that we saw um star city games run out it became very clear that uh lands was dominating in this format because everybody was playing grixis delver and lands was kind of the natural predator to that <laughs> so like deep into the tournament uh, you kind of like only ever face against Grixis Delver, it felt like back then. And uh, at the time, Lands was just like the perfect counter to to that deck for a couple of reasons. I think that part of it was that the Grixis Delver players just weren't used to playing against Lands too much. Um, and they didn't like know the play patterns as much. And mm -hmm. uh, it like they their sideboards weren't as stocked for it or kind of whatever. But, it, you know, it became pretty clear that, you know, uh, pretty much all of Lan's plans uh, worked out really well against Grixis Delver. And Lan's plans are, um, you have the the, uh, the prison element of Lan's where you, you know, lock out your opponent by wastelanding them over and over again or whatever. So, right, so there's the, there's the prison plan that Lands has, which is, like, you know, wasteland your opponent a bunch, keep them off of their lands, and make sure they can't have any spells. Yep. Um, and But then there's also the, uh, the 2020 plan of Turbo Depth, or not, of, of just Lands. Which they do not have many tools to deal with. Yeah, and, and Grixis Silver doesn't have a lot of tools to deal with the 2020 um, until, until sideboard. And that's kind of like a unique plan that Lance has where you can kind of look at some opening hands and say, oh, okay, this is a fast 2020 hand, or, oh, okay, this is like a prison plan. And then like and not to the mention the Punishing Fire plan. Lance can have is, right, exactly, like the, the, the Punishing Fire, kill all of your threats, deal. Um, and, you know, the fact that pretty much most of Delver's threats just die to that card is, is pretty important. Mm -hmm. um, but some an evolution that we saw... Um, was that more and more Grixis Delver players were a becoming more um, in tune to playing around Wasteland better and packing more sideboard cards for lands. Um, so they were kind of able right. to play through the the prison elements and the like the punching fire elements with like surgical extractions and a bunch of other stuff that we saw the Grixis decks playing. Um, right, sideboards are very, very heavy on surgicals right now. Yeah, right, and it's because people just want to be prepared for lands. Um, yep, and that's reasonable. And so I think lands win percentage against Grixis Delver fell pretty rapidly to where I actually believe that most of the time a competent Grixis pilot can beat a competent uh, lands pilot. Sure, um, I I think is, I believe that. Like between, which is pretty crazy, but yeah. I, I mean, between like having access to lots of surgicals, the fact that Deathrite Shaman is good against lands anyways, uh, mm. it, as long as you're careful with it, and um, yeah, just, just you know, Grixis Delver is a lot more adaptable than a deck like lands it, it, in choosing its plan, especially yeah. on the yeah, early yeah. couple of turns, because Brainstorm and Ponder are just broken cards. So Exactly, exactly, for sure. So, so essentially, we, we started, or Jody, I guess, specifically started to notice that the 2020 plan 
was just the best plan that he had access to pretty much in 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 most of the matchups that he was facing against with lands Mm -hmm. he just wanted to blitz 2020 people uh, at a higher frequency and and um with more protection towards that plan right yeah it he noticed that it became the best plan against um the grixis decks and additionally it's always been the best plan against any sort of combo deck like right a lands deck gotta kill him like cross his fingers for a fast 2020 draw um against any sort of combo deck sure um so if that's the idea why don't we switch over to turbo depths which is just really all in on making sure that happens right and and that's been my my thought process in in coming into legacy i mean part of my thought process was just like i don't want to brainstorm against the noah walkers of the world but (laughs) you know i i didn't just pick a deck at random i i picked a deck that tends to have a good matchup against grixis delver decks has a strong plan and is reasonably well positioned in the meta because um, it's exploiting a weakness in what a lot of people are doing. Um, yeah. and, and we've definitely seen Turbo Depths, seen the stock of the deck, you know, rise over time. But that wasn't quite good enough for Jody. He didn't just play the stock Turbo Depths deck that I've been running. Oh, yeah. Right. So so Jody, right. So the traditional Turbo Depths decks typically have, um, you know, your your traditional Depths combos, which include Vampire Hex Mage, Dark Depths, and Thespian Stage Dark Depths. Um, and then the, the turbo decks play a lot of like fast mana and like crop rotations and pithing needles to protect everything. So that's kind of mm-hmm. like the, the idea of the deck, right? Is it's like playing like these, this like fast plan and a lot of ways of finding the combo out of crop yeah. rotation and, um, it plays like Sylvan scrying and stuff like that. But another part of the, the traditional turbo depths decks was that they ran the fast mana out of uh, both um, Lotus Petal and uh, Elvish Spirit Guide. Uh, mm-hmm. These were kind of like the cards that the lands players were leaning on to you know, kind of do everything Put, a little faster. Puts the turbo um, but, into the turbo depths, yeah. Yeah, that's like that's the turbo, right? But Jody didn't really like these turbo elements. Like, you know, there are a lot of draws where your Lotus Petals and your guides just don't do what you want them to. So he, in in my opinion, w- 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 which was just like a genius move on Jody's part. So he stripped these fast mana elements and in what I think was a genius move, put in four Dark Confidants and four Deathrite Shamans. Yeah. And uh, Deathrite Shaman, like, you know, replacing your Lotus Petals with Deathrite Shamans is just probably something that these decks should be doing anyways. I, I think uh, it Death probably is, is is just great because you yeah. never you're never using your lotus petal on turn one, so a birds of paradise is is just as good as almost as a lotus petal, you know, unless right. your mana is really weird that game. And deathrite shaman just has so much more utility. Like that can just be your plan for a game if your opponent mm-hmm. isn't prepared for it. And then dark confidence is a, like it's another way of like finding you your combo pieces. It's another threat that your opponent has to deal with, um, and all this other stuff. Yeah. So his deck really operated under the idea that uh, your opponent is going to be so focused on keeping you off of your combo, your your Dark Depths combo, that it's going to be much more difficult for them to answer just kind of like these duders that are getting you value incrementally throughout the game and uh, um, all this other stuff. And he even goes kind of even harder on that post board where his sideboard includes two Tarmogoyfs and two bitter blossoms yeah and i saw him go like thought sees into Tarmogoyf one post word game and it was just over it was like <laughs> it was hilarious <laughs> because um if you just like think about how you're going to configure your deck post board against turbo depths you're like okay i'm bringing in surgical extractions and um which is not right by the way as 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 someone who's been playing a lot of turbo depths uh a lot of time like like the one time surgical is good is if you wasteland their depths and then surgical it and then the rest of the time it just doesn't do anything mm-hmm. and post board i'm not just playing out my turbo depths or i'm not just playing out my depths without a plan for if you're trying to wasteland surgical it right like right, right. I, I think that leaning on that is, is something that a lot of people are doing that is just not an acceptable way to to battle the deck like maybe you just have so many dead cards that you're bringing these in 
anyway, but I, I think there's just got to be a, a better way of thinking about the matchup from the other side of the table because um, yeah. it has been un, unimpressive to me. But sorry, sorry right. to interrupt. Just, just I thought. No, an yeah, I mean, point. I think that you're you're definitely right there for sure. But the the idea is that your opponent is going to be so focused on preventing you from making a twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're doing that, anything else, then right. If you just like Simon Tarmogoyf, they just die. <laughs> <laughs> They're just not equipped at all post board to handle that. And if they are trying to prepare for that as well, then you still just have your twenty twenty plan. You can just, you know, make your Merit Lage or whatever if they're, like, also trying to answer all of your creatures and everything. So you're just, like, really stretching your opponent's resources pretty heavily. It, it Honestly, it feels like Jody might have broken something here because he had immense success. He was beating lands players. He was beating uh, Delver players. He was beating combo players. Um, like the deck runs four thought sees four duress in the main deck, so its combo matchup is is fine if not good, right? Yeah. Um, and he's got four pithing needles in there. It's just so he's got so much going for him that uh, this deck feels really really strong. And if honestly, if I was gonna pick up something in Legacy, I would I would uh, definitely want to try this deck out. Yeah, it it definitely seems sweet. I mean, the one concern, like I I definitely. I, I love the bobs for the the tough matchups especially. Um, like one of the big big difficulties with the deck is when you're playing against something like like Death and Taxes, which just has a lot of answers to your combo um, between Wastelands and, and Swords to Plowshare and, and Flicker Wisp and whatever. Um, but they don't kill you super quickly. So if you were to get the chance to combo off again or just find the right protection or whatever, like you could usually make it work. Uh, and so something like like Bob in in those matchups, those rough matchups, like like I, from the Turbo Depths perspective, you kind of categorize the meta into a couple broad categories of depths, which are like combo decks, blue decks, uh, and then like like Swords to Plowshare decks, especially the ones with Wasteland, are like a particular segment of the metagame that you struggle with a lot. And so this is a good way of, of fighting the Swords to Plowshare plus Wasteland decks. Um, the mm -hmm. one like concern is that, you know, game one, Lightning Bolt and Fatal Push are, and, and to a lesser extent, depending on the deck, cards like Abrupt Decay are just, are, are mostly dead cards against you. This, you know, turns them into like pr the premier removal spells that they are because you're playing a much more normal deck. Um, and so that that would be my one concern with it. But I, I mean, I guess it didn't really affect him. I don't know if he talked about that very much. Well, first of all, I think that the concept, I, I mean, you're definitely right in the sense that, um, you know, you are turning on these removal spells that otherwise would be blanked. But I think it's, it's important to kind of step back and take a look at that from like the other perspective of we're going from this like uh obscure strategy that blanks these removal spells to just kind of back towards the normal right mm -hmm. um so it's not it's not the end of the world that now okay all of a sudden your opponent's cards in their deck can be cards in their deck again um we're just kind of like we don't have that like edge or whatever and i think that it's kind of overvalued a lot of the time for people to to play these cards that are doing that kind of like turn on rules spells or whatever i think that concept is more applicable when there are cards that you play or there are decks that you play like maybe like one or two creatures in where otherwise you would play zero like an example of that would be like if you put one or two Lyras in the main deck of your approach deck. I think that that would be mm -hmm. bad because your opponent is generally going to have a removal spell rotting in their hand, so they're just always going to have an answer to it. It's going to feel like. But if you're still if you're playing like your full set of Dark Confidants and Deathrite Shamans, you're you're just back to like playing a normal number of creatures, and that's going to make your right. opponent's removal spells a normal number of good. Um, so it's not you know. We just get to play the normal game again. It's not. It's not like the end of the world where you know we're we're giving our opponent a card by like you know offering up this thing. It's just like for sure. It feels more like we're we're just like playing another deck that includes creatures, and there are plenty of decks that include creatures uh, in the format. So 
Yeah. Um, and and I guess yeah, it that's, it that's makes your safekeepers, your Sylvan safekeepers that much better because they've got, like, if you got Bob under a Sylvan, Sylvan safekeeper shield, like, that's pretty good. Sylvan safekeeper, I saw do a lot of work for Jody this weekend. <laughs> um, like, he just, like, had a Tarmogoyf and a Sylvan safekeeper out and was just, like, making land drops. And his yep. opponent had, like, two swords to plowshares in their hand and, like, something else. And we were just like, yeah, dude, we're just going to beat you down with these guys. And um, <laughs> I, I'll throw my Dark Depths away to, to make my Tarmogoyf, you know, <laughs> shroud yeah. or whatever. Um, yeah, that's sick. W- what are you going to do about it? So, yeah, I think that the Safekeepers definitely did a lot of work here. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, like, one other one other thing is that like making removal spells dead is a thing that makes a lot more sense in in modern and especially standard but it just means that like in legacy a lot of times it just means that well i know i'm shuffling these cards away with my brainstorm so it like makes their brainstorms slightly less insane because they have to get rid of their fatal push with it rarely are they going to just have removal spells rotting dead in their hand for the entire game and be down multiple cards because of it. I guess that's not really how it works in Legacy most of the time. Right. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I mean, this this definitely makes a, a fair amount of sense to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, I, I guess essentially what I'm trying to say is that, you know, um, playing creatures in this deck, to which ends up making your opponent's removal spells better, I just don't think that that's as big of a deal that a lot of people are going to make it out to be. Yeah, I, I think like running two bobs, like I've seen in some lists, I think that's probably not enough. Like that doesn't commit to to what what this plan is doing very well. Um, but the whole suite of of Deathrite Shaman, which just happens to be you know perhaps the most powerful card in Legacy, that's not Brainstorm. Yeah, when he told me that he was playing Deathrite Shaman in his deck, I was like, of course you are. Why would you not yeah. do that in any deck? Yeah. <laughs> it's just great. <laughs> yeah, Deathrite Shaman's insane. And you also get to make their Deathrite Shamans worse, because, like, a lot of times you're not going to necessarily care about using the mana on your turn for anything in particular, but you having a Deathrite Shaman in play means they can't use theirs as a bird's, so, yeah. Right, yeah. And that is that is something that Jody said as well over the weekend, is, like, he was like, yeah, dude, sometimes your Deathrite Shaman is just, like, an answer for their Deathrite Shaman, and that's good enough. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. I mean, the game plan, a lot of times, that you're trying to do with the regular version of Turbo Depths is to ignore their creatures completely and just be like, I don't care about how about your your Deathrite Shamans. I don't care about your Tarmogoyfs. I don't care about your Delver of Secrets. Like, I'm just going to do this thing. But that doesn't quite work out as often as, as you might hope. Um, it, it works out a fair amount of the time, but sometimes it's just like, you know, like a Deathrite Shaman plus a Delver of Secrets is an unbelievably fast clock. And... Sometimes you can't just you're just not able to win the game in time. So I, I I'm I'm definitely into this this iteration of the deck. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah, right. And it, it's nice to be able to say, oh, I'm I'm not going to be able to care about your creatures. I'm going to be able to do my own thing. Um, yeah. yeah, sure. In a perfect world, when your opponent's never interacting with you, uh, you can always do your own thing. But uh, it's just not always the case. You know, you don't always draw your combo pieces perfectly every time sometimes you have to dig towards them or whatever sometimes you have to set things up i think that you know saying that you can ignore your opponent's creatures all the time uh is an oversimplification um sure usually so yep yep i think that's true um, um but yeah i uh, i'm 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 kind of itching to i might just like even fire it up and uh play a league with with this deck on magic online just because it looked so sweet so yeah, uh, even though I don't have any, I don't have any legacy events coming up. <laughs> I mean, it'll at least be fun to uh, to run through the gauntlet a couple of times. I I definitely recommend giving depths a shot, and this one I definitely would like to try. I gotta, if I can scrounge up bobs and a couple of goifs, I probably will run this this list or at least something very close to it at the GP. And uh, that, that I I think I know enough people coming to this GP that that should be possible. But we'll see how that works out. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I mean, I think we've covered pretty much everything we wanted to talk about. Uh, the tournament standard, some legacy. Uh, I think we probably are going to need to give Modern some of its due next week, but there just has been like lots of other exciting stuff to talk about. But for our for our Modern only guys, humans is uh, busted in Modern. Um, yeah, humans is just banned. killing it. <laughs> no, just just whatever. 
whatever rants people normally go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know sure. we do have a couple of people in our Discord specifically asking for tips and tricks on playing humans. So I think maybe next week we'll we'll hit modern pretty hard and, and specifically like talk about why humans is so good right now and, and what you know what the answers are to it and how to you know we, we've talked about how to play the deck before, but I, I think you know things have changed enough uh, that that it's probably worth revisiting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, modern's great. I, I always love talking about modern. Um, uh, so I'm definitely down for that. Yeah, cool. I don't know. Do you have anything else to talk about today? Uh, I think that, I think we covered most of the most of the things. So I'm cool. I'm, I'm solid. Yeah, yeah. I'm set too. So yeah. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. Uh, as always, if you want to find us online, you can go visit us at our website, mtggrindcast.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm tweeting from at mtg underscore grindcast, and Collins is on Twitter as well. At Collins Mullen. And if you are, uh, are feeling generous and want to send us some support, uh, please go visit us at patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. You can come hang out in our Discord, ask questions. We'll do our best to answer them uh, in the Discord or on the show. And yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Hopefully I'll see some of you at the GP, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Take care.